discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Hello, America. Have I got some news for you. While Russia is banning the wearing of face coverings in public to prevent terrorism, here in the United States, the mask mandate on planes and trains is being extended, despite the lack of any clear explanation as to why. Also, so-called ghost guns are being banned as part of a bigger push by the Biden administration to convince Congress to enact stricter gun control laws. I'm sure if he could, Biden would prefer to just use his regular superpowers via executive orders, but arguably he's too busy right now using his special secret superpowers via presidential drawdown authority to send more weapons to Ukraine. $800 million worth to be exact. All of this and more coming right up. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Ruckus. Howdy, folks. Well, it's official. Moscow is going to start punishing mask wearers. Mayor Sobyanyan has not only lifted the mask requirement by decree, but has even made it a punishable offense to continue wearing masks in public, as reported by Free West Media. The decree came into effect on March 15th. The use of medical masks in Moscow is now only allowed in medical institutions if their management allows it. The authorities said, quote, The use of masks on subways, buses, streets, or any other location is equated with intent to hide one's identity from surveillance cameras or law enforcement, end quote. Anyone who still puts a mask on their face must expect a fine of 5,000 to 75,000 rubles. The main reason for the end of the mask regulations is likely to be a concern about terrorism. Russia is conducting a special operation in Ukraine, and currently has more pressing issues than worrying about face masks. FreeWestMedia.com Alrighty then, so that's how the masks are going out there in Russia. Meanwhile, here in the good old United States of America, NBC News reports, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced Wednesday the Biden administration is extending the mask mandate for travelers on airplanes, trains, and other transit systems into May. The current requirement that all travelers wear face coverings was set to expire on 
on April 18th, but the Transportation Secretary Administration will now extend the requirement for an additional 15 days through May 3rd, the CDC announced in a statement, quote, Since early April, there have been increases in the seven-day moving average of cases in the U.S., the statement said. In order to assess the potential impact the rise of cases has on severe disease, including hospitalizations and deaths, and healthcare system capacity, the CDC order will remain in place at this time, end quote. Some regions of the country have seen an increase in cases, but so far, much of the rise hasn't been met with a return of mitigation efforts like mandatory masking. Philadelphia became the first major city on Monday to reinstate an indoor mask mandate since the CDC recommended in February that most people can go without masks indoors. Cases are being driven by the BA.2 Omicron subvariant, which experts have warned is highly contagious. There have also been warnings that the extent of the latest surge may not be apparent because more people are utilizing home tests and not reporting positive results to government officials. Hospitalizations, though, have continued to be at some of their lowest levels since the start of the pandemic, even in areas seeing an uptick in cases. Airlines had begun to push the administration to let the mandate expire. Airlines have been left to enforce the masking requirements, while increasingly more states and localities have dropped their requirements that people wear face coverings in public. The group Airlines for America, which represents the 10 major U.S. carriers, penned a letter to the administration on Wednesday asking that the mask and pre-departure testing requirement for international flights be dropped. Quote, neither restriction is currently supported by data and science in today's public health environment, the letter argues. It is very difficult to understand why masks are still required on airplanes, but not needed in crowded bars and restaurants, in packed sports arenas, in schools full of children, or at large indoor political gatherings. Simply put, an extension of the mask mandate does not make sense, end quote. The White House had said it was leaving the decision up to the CDC. Under current CDC guidelines around mask usage, 99% of the country falls into the category of medium to low levels of community spread where the agency says masks aren't necessary. Transport Workers Union International President John Samuelson issued a statement arguing that a continued mandate should highlight the need for legislation to address unruly passengers. Quote, We cannot ignore that the mask mandate has driven an unprecedented rise in assaults by unruly passengers against airline workers who are essential to ensuring the public can travel safely, Samuelson said in the statement. That's why the TWU is calling for the passage of the Protection from Abusive Passengers Act, which will protect airline crew members, security screening personnel, and airline customers by banning abusive passengers from commercial aircraft flights even after the mask mandate is eventually lifted, end quote. NBCnews.com Okay, now that I got all of that out of the way, folks, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a lot. So much so that the only correlation between that story and the next one, believe it or not, involves the CDC. Because apparently their interests extend beyond viruses, as demonstrated in the following article, which will finally bring all of us up to speed with current events. DNA reports, a subway shooting in New York's Brooklyn 
area injured 13 people on Tuesday in the latest gun-related violence that rocked the United States. This is the second mass shooting incident this month, and third this year in the U.S. On April 3rd, gunmen killed six people and injured 12 in California's Sacramento. Earlier, on February 19th, a man fired into a group of anti-racism protesters in Portland, Oregon, killing one and injuring four. In 2021, the U.S. witnessed a fair share of mass shootings, with the deadliest recorded in California's San Jose and Colorado's Boulder. On March 22, 2021, a mass shooting at a supermarket in Boulder left 10 people dead. Barely two months later, on May 26, nine people were killed at a Transportation Authority control center in San Jose. The U.S. records a large number of mass shootings and homicides every year, with activists blaming the country's liberal gun control laws for the same. According to data compiled by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, thousands are killed every year due to gun-related injuries. In 2020 alone, 45,222 people died from gun-related injuries in the U.S., according to the CDC. This includes both murders and suicides. Murders accounted for a massive 43% of gun-related deaths. That's 19,384. This number is a sizable spike from the around 14,400 gun-related homicides in 2019, the previous peak of 18,253 gun-related homicides was recorded by the CDC in 1993. Nearly 8 out of 10 murders in the United States in 2020 involved a firearm. This was the highest percentage since 1968, according to the Pew Research Center. 2020 represented a 34% increase from the year before, a 49% increase over 5 years, and a 75% increase over 10 years, according to the U.S.-based think tank. On a per capita basis, there were 13.6 gun deaths per 100,000 people in 2020, the highest since the mid-1990s. DNAIndia.com Now here's an interesting thought. Since it's up to the CDC about the face masks and social distancing and pretty much all of the rules that have flipped upside down our entire lives for the last two weeks to slow the spread, which was now, what, two years ago? Is it going to be up to them to provide some sort of guidance or recommendations as to how we should fight gun violence? Somehow I don't think so, or at least I hope not, because history has shown, just with the face mask thing alone, how ridiculous the CDC's solutions are. Of course, we don't need them to come up with some stupid idea. Take, for instance, the following bit of news coming from Richmond, Virginia. The city of Richmond is looking to address the gun violence that plagues the area. One of the most recent shootings claimed the life of a 17-year-old George Wythe high school student. Now, the city is looking to hire quote-unquote violence interrupters within the Richmond Police Department to help reduce crime. According to the city's job posting, these interrupters will provide conflict mediation services in so-called quote-unquote hotspot neighborhoods. Their duties include detecting potential shooting incidents and identifying individuals at the highest risk of involvement in a shooting or a killing, and trying to resolve those conflicts without violence. NBC12.com Um, yeah. Who came up with that idea? Better question, what idiot would think that's actually a good idea and that it would actually work?
We're also investing in community violence intervention. These are areas of local programs that utilize trusted messengers, community members, and leaders to work directly with people who are most likely to commit a gun crime or become victims of gun crime. Get to them early. It works. It works. Oh, yeah, that guy. Well, <laughs> I don't think he really believes in what he's saying. I mean, if he believes so much in community policing, why doesn't he just send an army of these violence interrupters to Ukraine instead of howitzers? As reported by Reuters, on Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden announced an additional $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine, expanding the scope of the systems provided to include heavy artillery ahead of a wider Russian assault expected in eastern Ukraine. The package, which brings the total military military aid since Russian forces invaded in February to more than $2.5 billion includes artillery systems, artillery rounds, armored personnel carriers, and unmanned coastal defense boats, Biden said in a statement after a phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Biden said he had also approved the transfer of additional helicopters, saying equipment provided to Ukraine has been critical as it confronts the invasion. In a written statement, Biden said, quote, We cannot rest now. As I assured President Zelensky, the American people will continue to stand with the brave Ukrainian people in their fight for freedom, end quote. The new package includes 11 MI-17 helicopters that had been earmarked for Afghanistan before the U.S.-backed government collapsed last year. It also included 18 155-millimeter howitzers, along with 40,000 artillery rounds, counter-artillery radars, 200 armored personnel carriers and 300 additional switchblade drones. This was the first time howitzers have been provided to Ukraine by the United States. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said some of the systems, like the howitzers and radars, will require additional training for Ukrainian forces not accustomed to using American military equipment. When asked about the speed of deliveries, Kirby said, quote, We're aware of the clock and we know time is not our friend, end quote. The new aid will be funded using Presidential Drawdown Authority, or PDA, in which the President can authorize the transfer of articles and services from U.S. stocks without congressional approval in response to an emergency. John Spencer, a retired U.S. Army major and expert on urban warfare at the Madison Policy Forum, said he was excited to see that the United States was sending artillery and artillery rounds. Quote, you need these bigger, more powerful weapons, Spencer said, to match what Russia is bringing to try to take eastern Ukraine, end quote. As news of the latest security assistance came out, executives from the top U.S. weapons makers met with Pentagon officials to discuss the industrial challenges in the event of a protracted Ukraine conflict. These included executives from BAE Systems, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, Huntington Ingalls Industries, L3 Harris Technologies, Boeing, Raytheon, and Northrop Grumman. In a statement, Pentagon spokesman Eric Pahon said the discussion, quote, focused primarily on accelerating production and building more capacity across the industrial base for weapons and equipment that can be exported rapidly, deployed with minimal training, and prove effective in the battlefield, end quote. Zelensky has been pleading with the U.S. and European leaders to provide heavier arms and equipment
equipment. Thousands have been killed and millions displaced in the seven-week-long invasion. Russia has been unable to achieve most of its military goals as Ukrainians have put up a fiercer-than-expected resistance. Russia calls its actions in Ukraine a quote-unquote special operation to destroy Ukraine's military capabilities and capture what it views as dangerous nationalists. But Ukraine and the West say Russia began an unprovoked war of aggression. On Wednesday, Russia said it had taken control of the southeastern Ukrainian port of Mariupol and that more than 1,000 Ukrainian Marines had surrendered. Reuters.com. So it's totally cool for Biden to send howitzers to the Nazi extremist Azov Battalion, I mean to Ukraine, to defend themselves, while at the same time sending Americans a great big middle finger, and most of us left wondering exactly how we are supposed to defend ourselves. As reported by The Hill, on Monday, President Biden announced a ban on unlicensed kits to manufacture so-called ghost guns at home as part of his efforts to crack down on the proliferation of untraceable firearms. The new rule includes a ban on quote-unquote buy-build-shoot kits that people can purchase online or at a store without a background check. The kit can assemble a working firearm in as little as 30 minutes, according to senior administration officials. The new rule clarifies that such kits qualify as firearms under the Gun Control Act, and as a result, commercial manufacturers of them must be licensed, include serial numbers, and conduct a background check prior to a sale. Biden touted these new actions to fight gun crime on Monday, alongside Vice President Harris and Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. Gun violence survivors and families of victims joined the event in the Rose Garden. If you buy a couch you have to assemble, it's still a couch. If you order a package like this one over here, that includes the parts you need, the direction of assembling a functioning farm, you bought a gun. Take a look. Anyone can order the mail. Anyone. Folks, a felon, a terrorist, a domestic abuser can go from a gun kit to a gun in as little as 30 minutes. Biden pushed back on the idea that the rule is extreme. Is it extreme to protect police officers? Extreme to protect our children? Extreme to keep guns out of the hands of people who couldn't even pass a background check? Look, the idea that someone on a terrorist list could purchase one of these guns is extreme. It isn't extreme, just basic common sense. Biden also repeated his stance against defunding the police, distancing himself from the popular progressive movement. The answer is not to defund the police, it's to fund the police and give them the tools and training to support they need to be better partners and protectors of our communities in need. According to officials, in 2021, there were about 20,000 suspected ghost guns reported to ATF as having been recovered by law enforcement in criminal investigations, a tenfold increase from 2016. The rule applies to all ghost guns, regardless of how they were made, which can include 3D printing as well as kits. The Justice Department will require federally licensed dealers to take any unserialized firearm into inventory to serialize them. These guns are weapons of choice for many criminals. We're going to do everything we can to deprive them of that choice. 
And when we find them, put them in jail for a long, long time. The rule builds on executive orders Biden issued in June, aiming to reduce the proliferation of untraceable ghost guns, as well as regulating stabilizing braces on firearms, and helping states enact red flag legislation. The rule, announced on Monday, will also update the regulatory definitions of frame and receiver to ensure that firearms with split receivers are subject to regulations requiring serial numbers and background checks when purchased, and it requires federally licensed firearms dealers to retain records until they shut down their business or licensed activity, responding to ATF data that over 1,300 firearms a year are untraceable because dealers destroyed records that were over 20 years old. Biden called on Congress to pass legislation to ban the sale and possession of unserialized firearms, like ghost guns. He also called on Congress to pass bills to require background checks for all gun sales, ensure that no terrorist can buy a weapon, ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, and repeal gun manufacturers' protection from liability. Thehill.com. Real quick about some comments that Biden made about the manufacturers' liability. He went on this big rant about the lessons that we learned from the tobacco industry, yet I find all of that tone-deaf in a world where vaccine makers are completely not liable for any of their products. But maybe I'll dedicate an entire show to that sometime in the near future. Until then, let's take another look at this whole gun control issue, shall we? The Washington Examiner reports, in his latest effort to pretend he is doing something about skyrocketing crime rates, President Joe Biden rolled out his new rule on so-called ghost guns this week. In doing so, he peddled a number of anti-gun cliches and silly comments. For example, he stated, quote, you couldn't buy a cannon when the Second Amendment passed, end quote. First of all, this is not even true. As of this writing, we cannot find a law from that era banning the purchase of cannons. But more importantly, it is irrelevant to discussions about guns. There has never been a Second Amendment right to keep or bear artillery, landmines, bombs, tanks, nukes, or any other weapons that do not meet the legal and contextual definition of arms, i.e. melee or projectile weapons that individuals can wear on their person and carry. Biden also asserted that 20,000 suspected ghost guns are being recovered at crime scenes annually. This statement's relevance depends upon the fallacy that the government has some business tracking who owns a gun in the first place. But it is also misleading because the data do not suggest that homemade guns are being used in large numbers of crimes. Between 2016 and 2020, homemade firearms were used in less than 1%, 0.36% to be exact, of all homicides. According to the FBI, most guns recovered at crime scenes are not home printed, but rather purchased on the black market, 43%, stolen by the perpetrator, 6%, acquired from friends or relatives, 15%, purchased at retail, 10%, or brought to the 
crime scene by someone other than the perpetrator, 12%. Like most gun-related things, the possibility of people 3D printing their own guns at home sounds scarier in theory than it is in real life. This is mostly the provenance of enthusiasts, not mass shooters or criminals. Importantly, it is already and always has been possible for criminals, including felons already barred from gun ownership, to get their hands on guns discreetly, without police attention, and without having to do the work of building them. No law has ever, or could ever, change this. The advent of 3D printing and the consequent ease of home manufacture only makes the futility of gun control even more obvious than it was already. The government's say over citizens owning guns was tenuous at best. Now it is obviously non-existent. Indeed, Biden's new ghost gun rule does not disappoint as an exercise in conspicuous futility. It barely scratches the surface of the build-at-home market. Gun-making hobbyists and kit makers were expecting to fight something much more restrictive. This rule will require them to do slightly more work to make sure their builds are lawful. All of this, however, is beside the point. The reason for the current spike in violent and property crime in democratic-controlled cities has nothing to do with criminals running out in mass and buying 3D printers. The very notion is laughable. Rather, it has to do with weak democratic prosecutors, mostly self-styled progressives, who recently toppled less unreasonable democratic predecessors in primaries. These district attorneys are failing to incarcerate dangerous career criminals who have already proven impervious to rehabilitation. Between no-bail rules, failure to enforce laws against property crime, and the revolving door created by unwarranted reductions in charges even for serious and violent crimes, these quote-unquote progressive prosecutors have generated local crime waves so bad that they are affecting national statistics. San Francisco, which is not exactly known as a bastion of law and order conservatism, is on the verge of recalling its errant prosecutor, but many other places, Baltimore, Northern Virginia, Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, Oakland, are afflicted with such incompetent ideologues who are making their cities unlivable. If Democrats were really worried about criminals getting guns, not just keen on waging a culture war against gun owners, they would not be focusing on the useless gun laws they keep proposing. As with so many issues, Biden's new push against an imaginary problem shows that he doesn't understand the real-world problems people are facing. WashingtonExaminer.com And unfortunately, sometimes those real-world problems, dear listener, include having to defend yourself against a violent criminal. Let's be honest here, folks. If indeed the absolute worst-case scenario happens, and you find yourself involved in a life-threatening encounter with a complete stranger who has every intention of killing you, would you rather that your life was in the hands of the remote possibility that an armed police officer just happens to be nearby and saves the day? Or perhaps because your city has defunded most of the police? Instead, your only hope is that a quote-unquote violence interrupter will show up at the last second, most likely unarmed themselves, and try to convince the enraged would-be murderer to just perhaps reconsider his actions? Or would you rather take matters into your own hands and simply brandish a gun? 
like so many others have done, and most importantly, lived to talk about it. As reported by Fox News, Americans across the country have used legal guns to defend themselves and thwart crimes, but the reports often fly under the radar, and most people are unaware how often guns are used in self-defense cases. Dr. John Lott, an economist and president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, told Fox News, quote, having a gun is by far the safest course of action when people are facing a criminal by by themselves, end quote. He pointed to women in particular who, quote, behave passively and are, quote, about 2.4 times more likely to end up being seriously injured than a woman who has a gun to protect herself, end quote. As crimes skyrocketed in major cities since 2020, instances of women using guns to protect themselves and stop crimes have repeatedly played out. Quote, thank God I had my gun or I'd probably be dead right now, a Chicago woman with a concealed carry permit said in October after two would-be carjackers approached her outside a bank. In New Orleans just recently, a mom and Air Force veteran pulled a gun on a man who tried to get her into a car while she was sitting in gridlocked traffic with her two-year-old son. She wasn't forced to fire the weapon, and the suspect took off. Lott said that in a typical year, the media reports about 2,000 defensive gun use stories, but he added, quote, that is a dramatic undercount because the vast majority of successful self-defense cases don't make the news, end quote. Lott said there are about 2 million defensive gun uses per year, according to the average of 18 national surveys. The Heritage Foundation, which launched a database tracking how often guns are used in self defense cases, cites the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which looked at various studies and found, quote, that Americans use their firearms defensively between 500,000 and 3 million times each year, end quote. Amy Swearer, a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, says, quote, the reality is, I think this number shocks a lot of people, end quote. Swearer noted that even two outlier studies that found fewer instances of guns being used in self-defense still reported guns being used, quote, tens of thousands times each year, end quote. Lott said that people using guns in self-defense overwhelmingly don't even lead to a criminal being killed or wounded. He said, quote, 95% of defensive gun uses involve merely brandishing a gun, and less than 1% involve the attacker being killed or wounded. But most news stories only report on cases where a attackers are killed and brandishings are ignored. It is understandable that someone getting killed is more newsworthy than a woman brandishing a gun and the criminal running away without committing a crime. But from a policy perspective, we care about both cases. End quote. Homicide rates broke records in at least 16 major cities last year, while parts of California were plagued by smash-and-grab robberies, and cities such as Philadelphia and Chicago saw staggering spikes in carjackings. With the spike in crimes came fears from city residents that they needed to protect themselves. In Beverly Hills, California, for example, a gun store owner told Fox News earlier this year that sales recently spiked for him as residents look for a last-ditch effort for protection, even though the city has a long record of supporting liberal policies and gun control. It's a trend that has washed across the nation since 2020. The number of concealed handgun permits surged to 21.52 million in 2020, a 48% increase since 2016, and a 10.5% increase
increased from the same time last year, according to a study conducted by the Crime Prevention Research Center released in October. Lott said that last year, quote, women made up 28.3% of permit holders in the 14 states that provide data by gender, end quote. While permitted concealed carry among black Americans grew 135.7% faster than their white counterparts. According to Lott, quote, the people who benefit the most from owning guns are also the ones who are the most likely victims of violent crime, poor blacks who live in high-crime urban areas, end quote. Political activist Maj Tour has made similar comments, saying in 2020 that he believes, quote, more black people would be alive if they were armed, end quote. Speaking to Business Insider Weekly, he said, quote, so when I hear unarmed black man, I'm sad because there should be no such thing, end quote. But activists, researchers, and Democratic leaders argue that with more guns comes more crime. Researchers from Boston University examined all 50 states between 1981 and 2010 and found a quote-unquote robust correlation between gun ownership and gun homicides. Quote, this research is the strongest to date to document that states with higher levels of gun ownership have disproportionately large numbers of deaths from firearm-related homicides. Boston University Professor of Community Health Sciences Michael Siegel said of the research back in 2013, Meanwhile, gun control groups, such as the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence, argue that, quote, permissive concealed carry permitting laws are linked to 8.6% higher firearm homicide rates and 13 to 15% higher violent crime rates compared to May-issue states, end quote. Recently, President Biden met with New York City Mayor Eric Adams and rolled out a plan to stop the flow of guns in the city, bolster law enforcement, and increase funding for community policing. A part of the plan also included the Justice Department issuing directives to every U.S. Attorney's Office nationwide to, quote, increase resources dedicated to district-specific violent crime strategies, end quote. To Lot, what most people miss amid the emphasis on gun crime is that, quote, over 92% of violent crime has nothing to do with guns. The data shows that while violent crime reported to police rose 5% between 2019 and 2020, you can't blame that increase on guns because gun crimes actually fell by 27%, he said. The bottom line is that if you want to reduce gun crime, you do the same things that you do to reduce violent crime generally, and that is make it riskier for criminals to commit crime, end quote. Foxnews.com. Obviously, we all know that if you live in the United States, thanks to the Constitution, it is your right to bear arms. Of course, that doesn't mean that you have to. It's supposed to be your choice, folks, whether or not you wish to be armed. Not the government's choice, and not one that unfairly has been socially engineered upon you. Personally, I choose to be armed. That's my right, and that's my choice. You do you. But I will say that if you do choose not to carry a gun, there's always that slight chance that you might regret it. And then what? Anyways, before I let this get too serious, speaking of regretting not carrying a gun, 
Fox News reports, a transgender woman who had sex reassignment surgery as a teenager is warning those considering a similar operation to explore the world inhabiting their body as it is before permanently altering it, as reported by Fox News. In a Monday op-ed for the Washington Post headlined, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was 19 and Had Sex Reassignment Surgery, software developer Corinna Cohn expressed regret over her transition from being a man to a woman, explaining she wasn't old enough to make such a drastic decision and that it committed her to a quote-unquote lifetime apart from her peers. Quote, When I was 19, I had surgery for sex reassignment, or what is now called gender affirmation surgery, Cohn wrote. In terms of my priorities and interests today, that younger incarnation of myself might as well have been a different person, yet that was the person who committed me to a lifetime set apart from my peers. There is much debate today about transgender treatment, especially for young people. Others might feel differently about their choices, but I know now that I wasn't old enough to make that decision, she added. Given the strong cultural forces today casting a benign light on these matters, I thought it might be helpful for young people and their parents to hear what I wish I had known, end quote. Cohn explained she once believed she would be more successful finding love as a woman, considering she she was interested in men. However, she found that, quote, few straight men are interested in having a physical relationship with a person who was born the same sex as them, end quote. She described experiencing gender dysphoria as a teenager, as well as anxiety and depression, and that she wasn't prepared for puberty or the strong sex drive typical of a male teen. Quote, surgery unshackled me from my body's urges, but the destruction of my gonads introduced a different type of bondage. From from the day of my surgery, I became a medical patient and will remain one for the rest of my life, Cohn wrote, explaining the choice between the health risks of taking exogenous estrogen or taking nothing. She also described how she had pushed her parents out of her life before making the decision to have the surgery, leaving her to only feel validated by people she met on the internet who were like-minded. Quote, I shudder to think of how distorting today's social media is for confused teenagers. I'm also alarmed by how readily authority figures facilitate transition, Cohn wrote, explaining that years ago she had to persuade therapists, an endocrinologist, and a surgeon to take her through the process. She explained that she was still working out how much regret she should feel, considering if she hadn't made the transition, she would have dealt with separate challenges. She added that she was quote-unquote comfortable with the ambiguity. Quote, what advice would I pass on to young people seeking transition? transition, most of all, slow down. You may yet decide to make the change, but if you explore the world by inhabiting your body as it is, perhaps you'll find that you love it more than you thought possible." End quote. Foxnews.com well, that just about wraps this one up, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you learned something. And if you learned absolutely nothing, may it at least please be the following takeaway. There are some choices in this life that may or may not be a stupid idea, sometimes in retrospect, sometimes quite obviously. Choosing to wear a face mask for no reason might be pretty silly. Choosing to change your sex might lead to regrets. Choosing to be unarmed might be the last choice you ever make. But these things should always be a choice. For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Friday, April 15, 2022. 
For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.